This is Nicole Deffenbaugh. If you are enjoying the podcast, we invite you to tell your friends and family and like us on Facebook at Health Stories Podcast. A woman had contacted our funeral home and asked to have a meeting so that she could pre-arrange her funeral. When I went to her house uh, and introduced myself, she she was elderly. She was in her her mid-90s, had been widowed for many years, and wanted to sit down and and lay everything out and and possibly even pre-finance it. There's a progression to the information exchange. Typically, you start with what I'll call maybe the vital statistics, the, the things like her social security number, her her date of birth and her place of birth, her parents' names, where she worked, her education. Those are the things that the uh, vital statistics registry needs, but to a lesser extent, we also need them for, for uh, obituaries. And that, that all went very well, but when we started getting into the arrangements for the funeral itself and what she envisioned, uh, we started running into problems. Welcome to Health Stories Interviews Inside the Healthcare System. In this podcast, we invite you, the listener, to hear the tips and insights from clinicians and other healthcare professionals and patients as they navigate our complex healthcare system. I'm Nicole Deffenbaugh, and today I am pleased to welcome Eric Zizelman, who is a funeral director, and he's going to be talking about planning for end of life and death. So welcome to the podcast, Eric. Thank you very much. So there were some problems. So what happened? Yeah, this this was certainly not my first uh, prearrangement that I went on, uh, so I wasn't quite prepared for this. She started to be very um, hesitant in her answers, and that's not all that unusual. Most people don't like to envision what their funeral is going to look like or, or what they want. They have a hard time expressing that. But as we started to talk about those things, she went from uh, being hesitant to being outright agitated. And I wasn't quite sure where this was going until she finally stopped and looked at me and she said, so if I'm telling you all of this, what's your job? And that question confused me. uh, And I said in some manner, I'm sure, uh, well, my job is to facilitate what you need. And at this point, she, she backed up and she, she went into the whole backstory here, which I hadn't been privy to at this point. She was married at a young age, and shortly after they were married, they had three children. And shortly after that, uh, he died. The husband died unexpectedly. And she, she had been a widow for the rest of her life up until this point. <clears throat> and when she called the funeral home at that time, which, oh boy, had to be in maybe the 1930s or 40s, the funeral director came to the house and he proceeded much as I did. He sat down and got some of the vital statistics information, but this is where things changed. Uh, With having amassed all that information, he packed up his things and he left and he said, I'll be in touch. And this was news to me. I'd never heard of this before. I wasn't quite sure where she was going with this. And so sure enough, I imagine later that day or even the next day, he called and he said to her, okay, I've arranged for the viewing. It'll be at the funeral home from this time to this time. And then again, the following morning. And then from there, we'll go to this church where Father so-and-so will say a mass. And then we'll go to the cemetery. I've selected a cemetery and a grave spot. And I've arranged for dinner at this place. The menu will be this, and I've ordered flowers. And he even took it as far as selecting the casket. And this is what really blew my mind. He bought a suit for this gentleman. And so she looked at me and she said, I didn't have to worry about anything. I just sat at home. People came, they visited, and he took care of everything. And I was so grateful for that. And I looked at her, and I think my exact words were, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> uh, it, Welcome to the 21st century. Exactly, exactly. And this is where it started to to occur to me, and it, it subsequently fell through the next couple arrangement sessions, that there's a whole dialogue that has to happen out there that somehow I thought was happening, but it wasn't. Remember, I, I threw it in there at the beginning of this story, and 
and he probably uh, didn't think about it, but this woman has three children. So it never occurred to her that those children may wish to have some sort of input. Uh, they may have their own way of needing to deal with this. She was putting my abilities to, to do this for her mm. ahead of whatever her children would need or what, what, would, what they would want. We've progressed since then. Yeah. My, my parents' generation was, they, they look for some sort of personalization. My generation expects the customization right. in addition to the personalization. So her perspective and my perspective were black and white. I almost found it objectionable uh, that if someone would do that for me, if, God forbid, my wife passed away or one of my parents, uh, that they would come in, assume the reins, provide all these things, and never once say, what, what would you like me to do? What, right. To what degree do you want to be involved with this? I, I can't help but, but pause and, and think, because this podcast is about medicine and healthcare system, how there are um, there's a parallel between... Um, if we think generationally, how some patients want the physician to tell them what to do. Take this medicine, do this. They don't have to think about it. They just sort of trust in that that individual will do it for them. And so is there some sort of a generational mentality that the person is just going to take care of everything? There's a little part of me that like that because I was like, oh, good. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to worry about it because people, you know, having gone to funerals and been part of planning, there's so much stress that's put on the family, especially if it happens um, unexpectedly. You don't want to think about the flowers. You don't want to think about what they're going to wear because you've got so many other things on your mind. Um, but the expectation, but that doesn't mean I wouldn't want any input, but the expectation that she had that you were just going to do everything is, is mind boggling. You yeah. Know? Yeah. It was unique. I think there's two things going on there. Uh, the first is that, that this woman was, was a member of, of that greatest generation. They, 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 went through some of the most difficult parts of, of the last century, mm -hmm. the, the Depression and World War mm -hmm. II. Remember that the mentality then was, we're all the same. Mm -hmm. Yes, there's some minor differences about our ethnicities or our names, but really my life, or not, not even my life, but, but what makes me an individual isn't any more significant or isn't even worth mentioning compared to the next guy. Um, that that's very pervasive throughout that generation. That's something that that uh, we of my generation don't do so well with. We we want to be acknowledged as who we were, the things that make us mm -hmm. us. Uh, but the second thing that's going on there is that there was an implicit faith in in uh, professional people, doctors, lawyers, funeral directors, mm -hmm. all the way up through the higher levels of the government, uh, that sometime around the 1960s and 70s started to change. Uh, for example, with, with the Vietnam War and uh, the, the faith in the presidency. Uh, coming out of that, there, there was uh, more of a need to, to question and more of a need to interact as opposed to just taking blindly blind directions from, from these people. Yeah. Um, I, I just want to thank you for coming on this podcast. I've been really wanting to interview you for a while. I think many of us are... Um, really baffled by death. Um, it's something that in our culture, and I use that term very broadly, um, but in the U.S. in general, it's something that we really don't talk about. Um, death still is a taboo thing. It's something that you don't really address with your family. A lot of um, people, I think, really struggle with how to broach the topic and, and talk about it. Um, before we get into more about how to plan and, and hear some of the fascinating stories of people who have and haven't planned and things that you've seen, um, I'm curious, how many funerals have you directed or been a part of over your life? Oh, boy, that's that's a pretty, pretty tough question to answer. Um, when you say be a part of, you, you mean as a funeral director as opposed to... Um, a family member of mine passed yeah, away. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, okay. in a professional capacity, yeah. Okay. Because I know that you you were involved before you were a director, right? What else did you do? Well, you I were... was raised in a family of funeral directors. I'm fifth generation, so my grandfather and my, my father, um, from early years shoveling snow, getting up and, and shoveling snow before funerals or taking care of the grass um, through, through a whole lifetime of, of interactions of varying degrees, I played trumpet in the high school, so I was frequently pulled out of high school to go play uh, a military <laughs> funeral in the oh, middle of the day. Just... Uh, 
yeah, it, it's it's been exposure throughout my life. As to how many I've been involved with since I've been licensed, uh, probably to the order of maybe 2,500 or so, mm. uh, anywhere between 100 and 150 a year for the last 22 years. Wow, okay. So that's, this, that's a best guess. Yeah. So given that this is what you do for a living, mm-hmm. is this something that um, you freely and openly and uh, discuss, that you talk about death and you have no issues talking about it yourself because you're involved in this profession, or do you still find yourself sometimes challenged and, and having uh, difficulty discussing it with others? I don't think that anybody is truly comfortable talking about death. Uh, Even those of us that that deal with it on an almost daily basis, uh, there's something inherent about the topic that uh, it's just difficult. Uh, We we do talk about it. Uh, I know what my wife's desires are, how she feels, and, and vice versa. But, but it's, it's larger than just the funeral. There, there's a whole series of end-of-life issues that, that need to be discussed, both with your immediate family and ideally also, you know, a funeral director. Uh, there, there's a lot of financial details, a lot of legal details uh, that need to be addressed, and many will probably come into the conversation a little bit later on, but I, I don't want to launch into that, that, uh, that pathway right away. Uh, but yeah, it's not always easy, especially in the traumatic cases, uh, for me personally, uh, the, the automobile, automobile accidents that resulted in death, uh, infant deaths, uh, children, uh, you can imagine, uh, those, those are difficult for us as well. And, uh, it, it becomes a huge topic to try to manage your own inherent need to grieve, uh, and, and to keep in mind that you're going to do the best good here by staying empathetic, staying above it and, and keeping your eye on the fact that you're not there to grieve. You're there to help other people grieve. Yeah. Just like a medical professional, right, is is being there with the patient, but also being aware of your own emotion. Exactly. Um, does that mean, though, getting personal, that you find yourself um, really grieving a, a death that was difficult, sort of in the privacy of your own home? <clears throat> Yeah, um, I've actually heard heard my wife um, say to other family members at, at various points, you know, your your dad's had a, a, a bad day. Something's he, something he's sort of trying to mull out internally. Um, so she's offering a, not an excuse, but an ex, explanation as to why you know I'm I'm maybe a little bit short tempered or a little bit distant on a given day. Oh, to your kids, you mean? She'll say that. Uh, yeah, or, or or maybe even just somebody else, you know, not with, not getting into specifics about it, but, but just saying, you know, he's, he's dealing with something basically. Yeah. So, I can imagine what it would be like day in and day out having to deal with that. So yeah, I can't it, imagine, I should say, what it, it would be it, like. It takes its toll both in the daily sense and in a long-term sense as well. When you get to middle age and you pull into a cemetery with a procession and you're driving through the cemetery and you're seeing the headstones for all these people that you've buried uh, many of whom are friends, family members, family members of friends. Uh, it, it's difficult to keep, I don't want to say an optimistic perspective, but it, it sort of downtrodden your, your um, daily existence if you're not careful. Yeah. Has it changed your thought about your own death and dying and, and process? <sighs> Thinking about what, where you were 20 years ago and where you are now? There again, that's that's a tough question to answer. If if you're asking if I'm prepared uh, in the legal sense or in the the practical sense, um, yes, we're prepared. Uh, we we're all know where everybody feels about everything, and and we're we're prepared in that sense. If you're talking emotionally, uh, there's good days and there's bad. Not that I dwell on it too often, uh, but there's sometimes that that. Uh, and that, I think that's more of a matter of faith than anything. Uh, there, there's sometimes, just like faith, it's uh, you have your, your good days, and there's other times that you, you have a day that there's it's a bump in the road that it's difficult to get over. 
Well, thanks for answering those uh, personal questions. I thought I'd make this, uh, at least the beginning, I think people are curious about the profession of being a funeral director. We know very little, I think, mm-hmm. as a culture, because again, it's not a topic that we talk about. So uh, I was curious to hear sort of your professional and personal takes on, uh, you know, what it's like being a funeral director and how it's affected you and impacted you and your family. Um, I'm sure people are interested, though, in hearing more about, you know, how to plan um, for end of life and some of the stories uh, that you have experienced of good planning and uh, not so good planning. Um, so I wonder if you could uh, jump into that and, and share with us um, some of the stories that stick out for you, that stand out for you. Yeah, I can do that. I think <clears throat> one of the one of the worst ones was, was, again, about 20 years ago. It was a woman that was in her early 50s, I believe. And uh, she went to work the one day, kissed her husband goodbye. He, he was getting ready to leave for work. Uh, she went to work, and while she was there for a couple hours, and then the phone rang, and it was his his uh, place of employment asking if he was coming in today. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can see where this is going. Uh, mm-hmm. She tried calling him. There was no answer. She went home, and, and she found him. And I, I really felt for her. Uh, and it, it's it's something that we see quite a bit of, but I think it was, it was really the first time that I had to deal with that one. Um, in the blink of an eye, her whole life had changed. Um, she was probably at that moment more than anything trying to manage her own grief. Um, but in addition to that, then there was right behind that thought, all of these practical daily concerns, you know, this is, I won't have my husband anymore. Which then led to, well, we're not going to have, I'm not going to have his income anymore then too. Uh, you know, our children aren't married. He's not going to be there for that. How am I going to pay for the mortgage? He took mm-hmm. care of all the bank and the cars. So when she came home and found him, um, she had called the ambulance and within a short amount of time they were there. And then a few minutes after them, the coroner and the police had gotten there. Uh, the, Neighbors started coming over wondering what was going on, and, and sure enough, they found out. And all of this is swirling on around her. She's thinking, I need to call the children. They, they live out of the area. Uh, they need to know about it. And what became evident in the days that, that followed was that she, like the vast majority of, of other people in her society, hadn't talked about this at all with her husband. There, there was no even offhanded comments like... Um, you know, I want to be buried next to my, my mom or my dad, or someday when this happens, I want you to know so-and-so. There was none of that. Mm-hmm. So in addition to all of these emotional concerns, all of these practical concerns that she was dealing with, um, she had to sit down and talk to a funeral director and make a whole bunch of decisions on what was probably the worst day of her life. Uh, that's something that very few of us are able to successfully do. And as I'm sure you know, much in the medical field, when you're emotionally engaged to that extent and you're called upon to make decisions, you're usually not the best decisions. You're usually not well thought out. Now, a funeral director, a good funeral director, will will sit there with you, will be that source of reason for you, uh, and make sure that you think through all of the implications uh, one way or the other, and uh, I hope we've succeeded in that in that regard. Uh, but that didn't diminish the empathy that we had for her on that day and, and, and the days that, that followed. A couple of years ago, I think it was in 2013, the, the National Funeral Directors Association did a study, and they found that, that under 25%, some, something about 23% of the people have actually had conversations about death. Yeah. Very few of us have. Almost... I think it's about 9% of people have actually gone that additional step of talking to a funeral director mm. and, and setting up something. Uh, even if it's only the exchange of information for other people, it may be the, uh, the actual financing end of it. But very few of us have done that. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because um, I used to be the director of advanced care planning. I talk about this, uh, talked about this in another podcast. And um, whenever I did community talks or talked to others, it was... Work on your advanced care planning, which means filling out an advanced directive, having a conversation with your family, 
this is this is the part giving your advance directive to your physician and there was never i never talked about and no one ever brought up talking to a funeral director that's never that's never been a part of it you know it's it's because that is that's about end of life care right so if something right. happens to you talk to your doctor What's interesting, in in my opinion, is when I talk to people about living wills, they think of wills. They think of just the financial and not the, the body the, part the body of it, themselves. right? Yes. Um, and again, it's the financial part. Oh, I would talk to a lawyer, you know. And so at what point do we talk to funeral directors for myself? And I don't know how many listeners would agree with this. I don't think of talking to a funeral director until someone's already died. Yeah. That's- you know? So that's not that's not on, on my radar. That's probably true for for most of us. It has changed a little bit uh, with Medicare and and um, the the assisted living, in that if there's going to be a spend down of assets when somebody's getting prepared to go on on um, on Medicare for end of life care, uh, part of that now is the. Uh, the person, the agent uh, that, that's helping them with that uh, will advise to them that they need to go to a funeral director and actually prepay, set up an irrevocable oh, okay. burial contract. Uh, and that's probably the only the only form really that, that we're getting any referral from. But it's end of life. They're either terminal, hospice, something like that. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. usually yeah. It's, it's end of life uh, within the year. Yeah. Uh, within the year. But sometimes it's only a matter of weeks as well. So, yeah, your point's taken. So going back to the story of the woman, even though it's a specific story, I'm guessing it's not a unique case, especially for somebody who has a very sudden death that she wasn't prepared, right? So even though you're talking about one person, the 25%, does that represent sort of what you've seen in that when it's a very sudden death for many people, they they really weren't prepared? Yeah, yeah, that's very much the case. so much so that that there's uh, there's times that they didn't even know who to call. They, they sit down in front of a computer and, and do a Google search. Mm. Uh, so it's to that extent. That, who to that, call for what? Right? As, as a funeral director. Oh, I hear what you're saying. Right? Yeah, so, I wouldn't know who to call if something happened to my partner. I I wouldn't know where to. Well, <laughs> I I do have some ideas of people I could call, but I, I get your point. Is yeah, where would you even start? Yeah, 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 exactly. And yeah. for for us, it's a little bit different. Uh, we live in a small coal region community, so most people know the options. Uh, but right. I would imagine that, that people who um, don't have a long-term history in a suburb or a city with right. multiple places, they would have no idea. They, they really don't have much of a reason to interact with a funeral director short of, you know, I went to that funeral home for somebody else's funeral. Yeah. So tell me about the good examples that you've had. And I'm curious for the ones, I think this is an assumption that I have, is that if you're older, that you're, you're better prepared, right? So have you, have you seen examples of individuals who came in and were already, like there was a tragedy, a, a sudden death, and they already had everything prepared in advance? Yeah. Does that I, happen? It, oh, yeah, I, absolutely. Okay. It happens. Um, and not just for people who are in their 90s or... Yeah, but I, I want to dispel uh, a myth, maybe, or at least a, a misunderstanding. Yes, you can pre-plan, you can pre-finance, but there's a certain level that you get to with the details that mm. you still need to interact. It's it's not like you can um, possibly decide everything, uh, and you don't need any input again from any any survivors at all. Uh, that that just can't happen. Uh, but in as much as yeah, I'm glad this was paid for. I, let, let me put it this way. I've never had anybody call and say, I wish my mom hadn't prepaid or pre-planned oh. this. That's, that's never once happened. In fact, uh, what has happened frequently and still, still continues to is that people call and say, um, my father just passed away and I'm calling all the local funeral homes in the hopes that he pre-planned his funeral. Oh, because they didn't know. They didn't know. Oh uh, which you know supports that that yeah. that theory that um, most people just don't talk about this at all. But what's really interesting about that comment is is their choice of words. It's not mm. I'm calling to see if my dad prepaid for a funeral. It's I'm calling to see if my dad pre-planned for a funeral, mm. which I take to mean as 
the prospect of planning somebody's funeral is scarier for most people than it is paying the for cost. The oh, yeah, I thought of that. Right, because there's so many things you have to figure out. You know, it's not just the burial plot if you're going to be buried or cremated. And it's not just the flowers. It's, well, g- give me some examples. So tell me, tell me a little bit about the list of things that you would need to. So, so if anybody's listening who hasn't been involved in preparing for a, a funeral or, or even a memorial service, right? Cause you could still have a memorial service for someone, but you still have to figure out all the things that you're going to do with that individual. Right. So, so give me, give me a list of, of the things that we would need to consider. When, well, when, when planning, I think it can be as complicated or as simple as you would like it to be. Uh, there, there's what's what's the most simple list? I, I I just want people to hear. If I went the most simplistic route, what okay. would be the shortest list of things that I would still need to prepare? If that okay. Makes sense. Well, well, regardless of of which direction you're going with a funeral, there's still some basic things that we need to do. Uh, a death certificate needs to be registered, which means that there's a whole bunch of information that we need to collect. Uh, Most people are familiar with what would be on a birth certificate, but a death certificate is more extensive because there's been a life lived that needs to be uh, reflected Mm -hmm. with this information. So things, as I mentioned before, social security numbers, uh, date and place of birth and death, uh, names of parents, uh, who provided the information, what did this person do for the most of their life, where did they die, what did they die of, Uh, were coroners involved, was this hospice care? Was there uh, pregnancy uh, that, that resulted from this death? Would did people smoke uh, throughout the majority of their life? This, all of this type of information must be collected regardless of how somebody is mm-hmm. memorialized. From there, uh, the, the basic question would probably be, do you envision uh actually spending some time with this person. In other words, in terms of a traditional funeral with a viewing and a funeral, or wow. even seeing the person before they're cremated privately or publicly. Mm. Uh, and, and then ultimately, how do you want to celebrate this life? Uh, there's all sorts of options nowadays. Um, videos, pictures, eulogies, Facebook tributes, all sorts of things. Uh, obituaries would be included in that list. Uh, but there again, people, once you get that conversation going, people have a pretty good idea of where they want to draw the line, what the things that they, they don't want to do. They, they have a vague sense in their mind of what to expect. And that's usually the path that they go. There's some surprises on the way, you know, we'll say, have you thought of this? Uh, and somebody will say, no, we hadn't thought of that, but we really like that idea. Right. Um, um, I, I have to wonder, um, too, do you ever get any sort of disagreeance between what the person had wanted to do versus what the family is telling you to do? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's actually a, a very common source of disagreement. Really? Uh, so let me back up here. Funeral law is regulated at the state level. So in this case, obviously, we, we looked at Pennsylvania's laws. And in Pennsylvania, there's a law that's called the right of disposition which is basically a pecking order of the people who have the paramount legal right and responsibility to make the decision when somebody passes away. So not surprisingly, the first person on that list is a spouse. If there is no spouse, it goes to the next people on the list, which are children. I I just interrupt you. That sounds very similar to um, medical representative um, in terms of when they're incapacitated. Right, right. Very, very similar to that. So... After the children, it would go to parents and then siblings and then so on down the list. What we frequently find, though, is that if somebody comes in and pre-arranges for a funeral, explicitly states what, what they want, when the time comes a year, five, ten years later, uh, the family comes in and for whatever reason, circumstances have changed. And they say, no, we don't want that now. We want this. The problem is that you'll notice on that right of disposition that there is nowhere that the person's wishes for themselves is given any sort of consideration. Oh. Um, in other words, the, the top of the list is not a prearranged funeral and then spouse. Oh. It's the spouse and then the children oh. and then so on. 
So, so I could pre-plan my whole funeral, and then my spouse comes in and was like, no, we're not going to cremate her. We're going to bury her, or we're going to – and totally change everything. That is correct. There, there is a way to so deal to with that. I need to talk to my spouse tomorrow. Well, <laughs> well it's always a good idea to Which, include yeah. your family members yeah. or, or your spouse or whomever with your decisions and, and make them make yeah. them known so that they don't have to call funeral homes. Well, I was just going to say, do you, do you but, have a copy? So when someone's done with all of their plans, can you make a copy and then they can just can you distribute it to your family and be sure. like, here, by the way, I just met with the funeral this director is, and here's everything. And we actually advocate for that to be done. So yeah. everybody knows there's no surprises. But back to your original question, the way to deal with that is to have a statement of contrary intent, which is a legal document that they sign that's, that basically puts their own wishes at the top of that right of disposition. What's it called again? A statement of contrary, contrary intent. <laughs> intent. Okay. Right. Contrarian intent. Okay. No, contrary intent. Contrary intent. I thought you were contrarian. I'm like, is that like centurion? No. <laughs> Statement of contrary intent so that whatever I want to have happen trumps whatever anyone else wants. Exactly. Exactly. And that could be, I could see that as being really important, especially if you, um, I'm trying to think of examples, like you were raised in a very um, specific religion and your family adamantly believes that you should be buried and you think, no, I definitely want to be cremated. Well, actually, it usually goes the other direction. Um, it's the, uh, there's certain denominations that, that forbid cremation. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. So, okay. but yeah, your, your point is taken and that's, that's very yeah. true. More frequently, what we find is that, um, the, the issues usually come in at some point with the children. Either the children themselves disagree with what the parent has decided to do for their funeral. More often, the problem comes in at, at the level of the children, uh, that either the, the children disagree with what the parent has wished, or more frequently, there's disagreement amongst the children themselves as to what to do. Right, I can imagine that. And the problem is that the, the funeral director isn't empowered legally to decide what the right course is at that point. Um, in fact, there, there a couple of years ago was a law that was introduced that would at the very least say that in the case of equal status among the right of disposition holders, the funeral director can go with the majority. So as oh. if there was five children and three said one thing and two said the other, we could follow the direction of the three. Unfortunately, that law didn't succeed in being passed. Uh, so we're back to square one. In extreme cases, and we've had this happen a couple times, um, it's usually not out of the blue. Uh, it's usually in the context of siblings that just could not get along from a very early age. Uh, and after years and years and years of hostility, it's come down to this. It's an emotional time. They come in and they, they just lock horns. And on our part, we do what we can to sort of mitigate that, to, to navigate that, to um, negotiate that, if you will. Uh, but often it just it doesn't go anywhere. They're making an issue of it. So in, in that case, um, a judge actually has to intervene and hear testimony from both sides. Oh, my gosh. And then the judge will make the decision. And when that happens, of course, then it's a protracted process. And this is all, mind you, when somebody has passed away. Right. Right. So, how long, how, okay, I have a whole bunch of questions. How often does that happen where it has to go to court because the children or whomever can't agree? For us in the... Like percentage-wise? Oh, not... I'd be hard-pressed to give you a percentage. Yeah. Uh, I think for us it's happened maybe three or four times. Oh, okay. So, so it doesn't happen often. To that Out of 2,500, I mean, you've had three or four. That have, that have had so, to like, go to a judge, yes. Yeah. Uh, now, so to lesser degrees, it, has, it, it does happen pretty frequently, just that oh. it's not taken that far. Uh, but yeah, it does happen. So again, an importance of either a statement of contrary intent, right? As a part of the pre, pre as a part of your pre needs, right? And helping your family understand what your needs are, and having these conversations in advance, so that when it does happen, even if someone disagrees, at least they agree as a cohort, as a collective, about what to do. Exactly. Yeah. And there's no surprises. Concerns can be expressed ahead of time. Okay. Uh, it's not that anybody's getting hit with surprises when they come in and sit down to plan the funeral. Yeah. That ideally is... is... So going back to those three basic things, it would be enough information to fill out about the person. So if you haven't spoken to your 
older sibling in many, many years and you have no idea what they do for a living, you probably should have a conversation and find that out. The second is what they want to have done with their body, right, in terms of cremation, burial, whatever that is. And the third is how to celebrate that life. Yes. Right? Those are the basic three things that you should probably be talking to your family about. If you want to... And choosing a funeral director. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's assumed at that point. Uh, But the the fourth aspect of it then would be financially, if, if you actually want to set aside money to pay for this. In recent times, again, going back to that that Medicaid situation, uh, that's probably the best thing to do, uh, simply because when, when you go on medical assistance, uh, the government's not going to kick in with all the expenses for prolonged health care mm-hmm. if somebody's sitting on all these assets, you know, large bank accounts and everything. So they have to go through a period of spend down where those assets are liquidated, um, the government takes control of them, and then once all of those are down to a certain level, then the government will kick in with the care. And this automatically happens? Uh, well, no, no, it, it, it'd be uh, part of the process of uh, their end-of-life care uh, uh, through, uh, through uh, a hospice uh, or something like that. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, the problem with that is then, of course, that when, when death ultimately does happen, there's no assets there to pay for a funeral. So what the government's allowed for is, um, and they actually encourage through, through, um, through these agents to uh, meet with the funeral director and put the money aside. And uh, if, if you do it right, you can actually say through insurance, make, make the funeral director the owner and the beneficiary of a policy, take that asset out of the person's name. And that oh, way yeah, the, okay. the government you know, can't, can't access it to liquidate it. It's not considered an asset that counts against the person. So that, that's something that's frequently done. But if you set aside $10,000 and then I put it in your name as a funeral director and there wasn't enough money, or conversely, there was more money, then what happens to either the rest of the money or the additional money? Well, I guess the additional money is whomever. Right. Well, it depends. In, in the first case, it depends on the, the funeral home's policies. Uh, some funeral homes will simply say we'll accept that as full payment. Others will say no, we need we need to um, re- recoup that from from some other part of the family or, oh, okay. or or something like that. But if this is set up in the form of a irrevocable burial contract, that shouldn't be an issue. Um, <clears throat> oh, so again, you got to do it specifically as an irrevocable burial contract. Burial contract. That, that's okay. the proof that medical assistance wants that this is done, and. Um, and if it, there again, it's a contract. So, um, you know, there shouldn't be an issue that, that there's not enough there. The funeral home has agreed to do these services and, and provide these goods for that amount of money. Uh, so there shouldn't be a case where uh, there's not enough money there. Conversely, it, it, yes, it is possible that there will be additional funds there. And what we're required to do then is to take those funds and put them in the estate of the, uh, the person that passed away. So the okay. executor of that estate would then get that money back. Correct. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. It's, you know, just sharing. Uh, I had a, a family member who passed and had basically done everything, um, knew who they wanted to sing at their funeral, had the, the funeral director, had everything paid for. I mean, really had almost everything done. And the person who was the executor said, I didn't know this. And I'm so glad. They were so very grateful that this had actually happened, that someone else had, had done all the work, that they had very little to do and, well, and it, very little to worry about. It's interesting. Uh, there, there's three concepts that, that are frequently confused uh, among people that, that are having to deal with these issues. The first is the executor, mm-hmm. uh, and that's obviously the executor of the estate, but most estates aren't opened until like at earliest, maybe a week and a half after death, okay? So really, the executor per se doesn't have they, much influence yeah. on the funeral process. They had, because of the individual had already had, um, what am I trying to say, was incapacitated, that person had already become executor of that estate prior to their death. Okay, I, I, my, yeah. my guess is what you're talking about there is the, the power of attorney. Thank you, which power, is the, of attorney. Uh, yeah. power of attorney. Sorry. Which is the, the second term. Yeah. Power of attorney, yes, is a legal <laughs> status, right? 
<laughs> legal status that that enables somebody to make a decision for somebody else if right. they're financially unable, yeah. unable to make decisions of their own. Which in living wills, you have a power of attorney. Right. Yeah. But, but the problem that we that we frequently have is the power of attorney is is that status. It terminates when the person dies. The executor doesn't kick in until, as I said, you know, quite a few days after the death, which leaves this window in there as who who is calls the shots, who who has the rights to make the decision, and that's where that that um, right of disposition holder steps in. That's that's the uh, title of the the person that that uh, is making all the decisions. So that's why it's so important to figure this out in advance. So we need to identify a power of attorney, which right. again takes care of us our if we're incapacitated, take, can financially become take over as well if you are incapacitated, right? So this power of attorney, but we and then the executor of the estate, so that's in the will, and right. and we need to identify somebody in between. Well, somebody always has to be identified, and it, it's the law that speaks to that. Right. Uh, every once in a while, you you do get you do get somebody that doesn't have any survivors, never had children, never married, parents are long gone. Uh, and that it's especially helpful in those situations that they've pre-planned, even if not to express their wishes, then to identify somebody for lack of anybody else that would appear on the right of disposition to, to take the reins and tell us what, what needs to be done. But the power of attorney nor the executor are automatically the right of disposition. Correct. Uh, frequently, they're, they're actually different. Um, the executor, a lot of times, is somebody that isn't immediately involved with the family. And I think that my guess is the reasoning there is that um, if you have five children and you make one of them the executor, uh, that that may cause problems. Conversely, if you make all five children executor, that's going to be a logistic. <laughs> it causes problems. So sometimes what we see is... is um, you know, it's a good friend or um, mm. some some nephew that they were especially close to or, or something like that. Um, now, we don't really have... We, we, we coordinate with the lawyers. Um, we advise in as much as we can without overstepping the bound of where the funeral director ends and, and the lawyer begins. Um, but we don't really have all that much to do usually with the estate end of right. things. Um, simply because you must be a lawyer to, to deal with that. So we've talked a little bit, a lot, um, about different events and things that have happened and who we need to appoint, right? Power of attorney and uh, an executor of our estate. And um, I, I want to go back into documents a little bit more. You've, you've mentioned some things like um, the, I keep thinking, uh, the contrary. The statement of contrary. <laughs> yeah, the statement of contrary. What other documents do we need to prepare? Most of the documents that are pertinent for the pre-need can be handled by the funeral director. The, the bigger issue there would be the types of things that, that uh, you would supply us that we okay. wouldn't otherwise have access to. So the first one that comes to mind uh, for the veterans out there is the veterans discharge. Uh, there's a whole, there's a lot of benefits that, that veterans and their spouses uh, can apply for. Uh, some counties have uh, burial assistance, a uh, monetary award that they will give to veterans or their families. Uh, they can get free headstones through the VA. They can get mm -hmm. a military burial, certainly a flag uh, to drape the casket. The, the list goes on with, with uh, presidential citations and all sorts of things. But the key to getting all those is the military discharge. Or uh, veterans discharge. Do you go online to find that? Uh, I mean, no, they, would, they would have been it? issued to the veteran when he issued, okay. he or she was, um, you know, detached from the service. Oh, okay. So frequently, people will put that in a safe uh, mm. or even a safe deposit box in a bank, but they don't communicate where it is. Right. Make sure you have the key or the code for the, the key for the, the code. Yeah. It is, or worse yet, they they just it never occurred to them. You know, they they don't know. So we're frequently prolonging things to try to find these, this this document in order to get the uh, the military service or the flag or something like that. Now, a lot of the branches of the service will provide those, uh, assuming that, you know, the, the person actually, they, they'll assume that the person was, you know, actually a veteran. I, I don't think I've ever came across a case where somebody claimed to be a veteran and wasn't. 
So, uh, but still, it, it does create some problems if that document can't be found. Uh, the second one that comes to mind is an insurance policy. The reason that that one comes into play isn't so much for paying for a funeral directly. Uh, the bigger problem that we seem to have with that is who the beneficiaries are. Mm -hmm. So say, Nicole, that uh, you and your husband have policies on each other to, to uh, pay for a funeral or the, the additional expenses that, that one of you might incur should the other one pass away. Um, your spouse passes away early and 20, 30, 40 years later, it comes time you know, that, that you want to come in and prearrange a funeral for yourself. Um, we look at your insurance policy and we see that the beneficiary is still your spouse. Um, the problem is that the insurance company won't pay the, the death benefit to anybody other than the beneficiary. So what you need to do in that case is prove to the insurance company that he has passed away, uh, which means a death certificate. Most people don't hold on to death certificates for 20 or 30 years, which means we need to apply for it. Oh my and the Department of Vital Statistics sometimes can take a couple weeks at least to get a copy mm. of the certificate for you. So it, that end of things really... Uh, I mean, really, does it... When, I mean, not to interrupt you, but shouldn't we just change who the executor is or for the policy? The beneficiary. Uh, sorry, the, beneficiary for the policy. Yeah, but that, that's When that person that's passes, we should change it. Right, but... It can also be. It also comes to light as a possible issue when we sit down to do your prearrangement. So if you bring the insurance policy in, we can see that then, and we can worry about that then, as yeah. opposed to worrying worrying about it, it, you know, at the time of need. And then finally, believe it or not, the the third issue that we seem to be running into a little bit more frequently is um, a cemetery deed. Uh, and the reason that one is is uh, an issue is. Maybe it, it happens a little bit more frequently up in, in small town America than it does in, in urban areas. Uh, but some of the cemeteries in our, our small town, for instance, have been there since the town was originally settled. So somebody all those years ago bought a deed to a cemetery and, you know, say it's an eight lot, eight lot uh, grave, or I'm sorry, an eight grave lot, and there's an open grave. And a hundred years later, somebody passes away and they say, okay, I'm going to be buried there. And somebody else comes forward and says, well, no, wait a minute, I'm a cousin. I thought I was going to be buried there. Uh, and it gets into who has the legal right to be buried there. So one of our local cemeteries um, up there has actually developed a policy that says, not only do we need the explicit permission of any extended family members in those situations, but there's also an additional fee that the family has to incur for all of this paperwork to happen on behalf of the cemetery. Uh, so if we know of these issues in advance, we, we can deal with them um, as part of the pre-need as opposed to the scramble of having to deal with it when somebody passes away. Then you're trying to track down people all over the country. They need to sign a document, it needs to be faxed, it needs to be emailed to everybody. If you can't get somebody, Cemetery is not going to give you permission to be buried there until it's all it's all squared away. So what I'm hearing you say is that if somebody, if you really want to be buried next to your parents and you're like, okay, I'm just assuming I'm the only child, of course I'm going to be buried next to my parents. Little did you know that your first cousin wanted to be buried next to your parents because that was their favorite aunt or something. Is that what you're saying? That there, there could actually be some, some conflict? Sure. And sure. And so when, when you buy a cemetery lot, usually the, the cemetery will say, okay, who's exactly permitted right. to be buried here? Correct, yeah. Now that's, they're, they're doing a good job of handling that. Nobody really thought about that 50, 60 oh, years I ago. Yeah, okay. Okay. So for people yeah. that have been buried for a while, then oh, that okay. tends to be the problem. I see what you're saying, yeah. So if, if those documents uh, are all part of the pre-need that we have on file, then when the time comes, there is none of this. There's no scrambling. There's no disagreement. Mm. Everybody's on the same page. They know what's happening. And everybody can turn and pay attention to what matters the most at that point, which is, you know, celebrating the life, um, mitigating their own, their own grief. And, um, and just one final point I'd like to make. Uh, I, I assume we're getting close to, close to the time. Yeah. Someplace along the line, we've develop this idea of closure with death. I really struggle with that. There's this belief that there will come a day and a time where we'll wake up in the morning after losing a spouse or a parent when we'll suddenly be okay with it. It doesn't work like that. 
I made a metaphor earlier about faith with something we were talking about. I don't remember what it was at the moment, but dealing with somebody's death is in very many ways like dealing, like exercising your faith, I guess is the best way to put it. You're going to have good days, you're going to have bad days, but it's going to take work. My grandfather died oh, 20 years ago. I still miss him, uh, but I'm at peace with it. That's not to say that I've had closure. Mm -hmm. It's going to be work that I'm going to do for the rest of my life as a consequence of having a relationship with him. So when I say these documents and this pre-need is, is all uh, important to take care of, it's with that in mind so that when the time comes, the focus can stay where it needs to stay, which is beginning this process of healing that probably won't ever quite come to a true end. It's, it's uh, I think there's a famous expression all of a sudden that you're seeing all over the place, and it's something along the lines of, life isn't learning to avoid the rain, it's learning to dance in the rain, I think is how it goes. And grief is much the same way. Um, it's something that you learn to carry with you. I'm so glad you brought that up. I recently read a phenomenal book, and I'm going to plug it. It's uh, Blake Paxton, uh, and it's called At Home with Grave. And in the book, he makes an argument for not having closure, exactly what you're talking about. And uh, he talks about his mom's sudden death of cancer when she was in her early 40s. And he talks about continuing those relationships um, with individuals who have passed in a way of um, trying to not not that there is no definitive end that there in our society there's this assumption that there's a grieving period we've heard that before right there's exactly. at the starting and end point and and i hear you and also um in paxton's book really challenging that ideology um but the purpose for this podcast is is really to help people to have conversations with others start to put your affairs in order which means find these documents um, and to make sure that um, we're really talking about it more. And uh, I'm really glad that you came on the show to do that. Thank you. So thank you, Eric, for being on the podcast. So a reminder to everyone that we are on Facebook, so please like us there. So I'd like to thank uh, Eric again for being on the show. My pleasure. This is Nicole Deffenbaugh with Health Stories. <laughs>